0: have your Bibles please turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 3 as we're working through it or have been Ephesians chapter 3 And we'll begin reading at verse 14 in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 3, we're beginning at verse 14. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, wrote, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to open your word to us. We pray you would open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts and minds. Lord, give us understanding in the scriptures and apply it to our lives. Help us to become effectual doers of your word and not hearers only. Mm -hmm. Give us grace now, Lord, we pray to hear, to understand, to receive, and to believe your word and to obey it. For we ask all these things in the name of your Son, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we come to this 14th verse where Paul says, for this reason, and if we look at it, we notice at the uh, beginning of this chapter, verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, Paul has the exact same words, for this reason, in Greek it's tutu karin for, the, uh, for this purpose, for this, this sake. And here he says, for this reason, or for the, this sake, because of this, I'm bowing my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is either, as has been said, picking up the narrative that he began, because if you notice, he is, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles... And then really uh, chapter 2 through 3.13, or excuse me, uh, uh, all of this section is really a digression. That's what I mean. Verse, verse 2 through th- uh, verse 13, Paul digresses. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And he says, well, if indeed you've heard of the dispensation, that is the manner of giving out or dispensing of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, etc., how by revelation he made known to me the mystery. He goes on and on to then uh, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, etc. Verse 8, to me, whom less than the least of all the saints. Then he talks about that God raised him up to preach the gospel, to let all men know. Verse 11, he says, according to the eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, he says, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. All right? He never really said what the reason was when he started. So that's right from the verse 14, Paul returns. And it's, and it's by the way, it's a glorious, inspired digression. I like it because I do that all the time, except mine aren't inspired, okay? Uh, you know, he starts to make a point And then Paul was awesome. He, he would start to make a, a point, and then he'd mention something about Jesus, you find this in the, in the other... Then he just goes off about Jesus because once he mentions the Lord, now he's talking about the one he wants to talk about. He's talking about the one he loves most of all because that's the one he knows that loves him most of all. And so he does that. But then he returns back. Keep in mind, we're reading the words of the Holy Spirit here uh, that he gave us through Paul. So now he returns back and he says, For this reason... And remember I started off... I was going to tell you why. Because of this. For this reason... And we've looked in chapter 2 quite a bit because when Paul says for this reason, he's going to tell you what the purpose is, but he's also building on what he's already said. And that's why chapters 1 and 2 are all these glorious truths about God's eternal plan of redemption. First and foremost, uh, eternal predestination and election. All those glorious truths of the sovereignty of God who works all things according to the pleasure of his own will. God didn't check with us to see... Uh, what we were going to do before he made his plan, he's sovereign over it. Uh, the fact that he sent his son to redeem his elect ones, uh, that Christ came to save us and we're saved by his grace, pure grace. It has nothing to do with our works or personal merit because, well, we have no good works and in and of ourselves, we're sinners and condemned. But Christ came and died for us. And so Paul then develops the whole the wonder of the mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles... Uh, in, according to God's eternal plan, we're going to be part of God's people. And they were going to make up the new Israel, we might say, the church. It would be both Jews and Gentiles, the two reconciled in one body by having that middle wall of separation, which were the ceremonial regulations given to Israel, initially to separate them from the Gentiles. Christ fulfilled those. That little wall of partition, Paul says, has been removed now so that there can be one people, a new people, the church. And we looked at Acts 15, where the apostles declared very clearly that the Gentiles are not under obligation to keep the Mosaic ceremonies, whether it be circumcision or uh, blood sacrifices or things like that, or health laws, you know, the, the food laws, I guess we should say, um, So the Gentiles are not obligated to do that. If you read Acts 15, there were certain things that the Gentiles were told not to do. They were to abstain from idolatry, from fornication, and from eating blood. They weren't to do that. Uh, And so there's certain things that the Gentiles had to do in order to be able to maintain fellowship with their Jewish brothers in Christ. So that's the great truths that Paul is based on. And so he says, for this reason, it's, this wonderful plan of redemption—it's beyond anything anybody could have ever known. It was a mystery uh, from the beginning, throughout all ages, until God revealed it. Now, people knew that Gentiles were going to be saved. You can't read through the Old Testament and not recognize that. Our Psalms about all—all all nations shall come and worship before you. God speaks and says the Gentiles will trust in His name. Everybody understood that, but what they didn't understand was that they don't have to become. Jewish to do that. They're going to be brought in as God's people. The only ceremonies in the New Testament church are baptism and the Lord's supper, and those are symbolic and representative. There's grace conveyed when you obey God, so we don't make light of the sacraments. God is definitely at work in the hearts of his people when those things are done. But those are the the simplicity of the simple things that Christ instituted. So we don't have all the other ones that Peter refers to in Acts 15 as the burden that neither we nor our fathers could bear. Uh, it was pretty complicated, and it uh, that's all been done away for both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. It's been removed. So now we understand why, okay? It's because of what Jesus did for us. That's why he says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand the foundation of Paul's prayer, and then we see in the last two verses the ascription of praise. So we, we have this wonderful truth. And so he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bowing his knees before God, it, you know, it's a posture of a humility and of submission and of trust. He went to God in prayer, he tells us how he prayed. He tells us to whom he prays and not what he says. It's very unique language if we look closely. We kind of, you know, we hear you know, the phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ a lot in the New Testament. And it's almost a catchphrase. Well, it seems when he refers to God the Father, he always or generally adds the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ or of our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, or the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you note here, it's that latter. He says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that he didn't say our Father or my Father, but he says the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's really calling upon God based upon the father's relationship to the son, and so because there's no scripture that's unnecessary. There's no you know uh, passages that well that's superfluous. We can strike that out. You know the Alexandrian editors in Egypt, uh, they had the habit of shortening classical literature because you paid by the stecoy, It's called by the line. So if you wanted to get a copy of Homer's Iliad. Uh, well, the Alexandrian editors went through and made editions of the Iliad, and they struck out lines that they deemed unnecessary. And there's evidence they did the same thing in the New Testament. Sadly, this is not my hobby horse. This is an important point. Sadly, so many new versions are based upon Greek manuscripts that came out of the Alexandrian tradition. And that's why you have sections missing. Um, so when you look at things, you'll find that certain certain phrases are omitted, and sometimes they omit, uh, well, things like, I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's actually omitted in a lot of modern versions. If you, Anybody here, if you're looking at an ESV or a, a New American Standard, you'll find it just says, I bow my knee to the Father. And that's really sad because the majority of all the manuscripts that were in the hands of Orthodox believers, uh, have the words, I believe, that Paul penned, and that's the full phrase, "the God to the, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have in our Bibles. That's the received text that's been in use based on the majority text. It's been in use since apostolic times, actually. Um, and so Paul here calls upon God based upon the Father's relationship to the Son. This is important because this is Paul praying or telling us how he prays, to whom he prays, And for us to look at this and learn is very important in our prayers. When you pray, it's important that you understand you have to go to God through his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, uh, all that the father gives me shall come to me and he who comes to me, I will not cast away. That shows the father's relationship to the son and our relationship to the father through Jesus Christ. And also, if you remember when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. What did he say after that? No man or no person comes to the Father, what? Except through me. We generally understand that to be in regard to salvation, but that's in regard to your everyday relationship to God also. No person comes to the Father except through the Son. That's why we really need to learn ourselves to approach God through Jesus Christ as our mediator, who died for us, who stands before the throne of God, uh, actually seated before the throne of God on the Father's right hand, there as our mediator and advocate, and we're to approach God through his Son. And so Paul is doing just that. She says, I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes you come to the Father through the Son for salvation and then in prayer in the whole Christian life. Christ is the one who brings us to the father. We're in him and he's in the father and the father's in him. That's where we find our unity. And so he says to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He's talking here, I believe, about the church, the church militant. We refer to on earth. That's those of us who are still down here fighting the good fight. Uh, You know, as Paul said, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. That's the church militant. The church in heaven is the church triumphant those who have been called into God's presence now. Their, their bodies rest in the earth until the Lord Jesus Christ returns on the last day. So the whole family in heaven and in earth is named. Now the word family in the original is that it's the word patria. We get the word patriotic or patriotism. Uh, it comes from the, the Greek word pater, which is the word for father. You can See, you know, English is actually related to to Greek in a lot of our our vocabulary. And you can almost hear, you know, pater eventually became father. Uh, That's how that happened. So it it, uh, is a word that was often used. And so those kind of words don't change much within the various Indo-European strains of our language. So I bow my knee to the father, pater, from whom the whole patria is named, that is the family. Or some have said you could render this from whom all fatherhood is named in heaven and in earth. That is in our families that were to be uh, following the pattern of God in his gentleness and his grace and his kindness to us. But the whole family in heaven and earth is named after him. He sets the standard. He is the father. Earthly fathers may sometimes fail. Sometimes through you know, just that they're, they're not everything they'd want to be. Sometimes they, they pass from life too soon and they're not there for their children. But, God, the father, he is our father. At one point, Jesus even said, call no man on earth, your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Uh, You know, as fathers, we want to be following the example of our heavenly father. But he he doesn't follow any example. He's the one that sets the whole tone for everything that he. So Paul prays to God and he says, no, he's praying here. He tells us what, what his prayer is, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. There's a lot going on there. Okay. So Paul's prayer is, he says, I bow the, the knee so that in verse 16, that word that there, he, Paul's stating what the purposes in his prayer. And there's three purposes stated in this prayer. The first one is that he would grant you, he'd give you. And then note the measure that he's using. He wants Paul's, his, 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 by the way, the Holy Spirit's inspiring him to write these words, so we're, we're getting the mind of God here, as Paul writes. The, the, this is how I think God wants us to pray, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. How extensive is God's glory? It's eternal, it's infinite, it's unsearchable. It's inscrutable, if you want to use that bigger word, okay? Uh, you You can't get to the end of it. We talked about this before last week. It's beyond measure that he would give you according to the riches of his glory. So Paul's saying, I want God to bless you beyond in the creation even, according not to the measure of his glory manifested in the world, but according to his glory itself. Paul's talking about eternal things here. And according to that measure, what's his, his request? To be strengthened with might through his spirit. That is, you'd have the ability, the capacity through the Holy Spirit working in you, in the inner man, the inner person. Now, what is the end of that? Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, he's not talking here about spatial dwelling, okay, or spatial Uh, You know, Christ doesn't physically live in your heart, okay? Uh, So what's he talking about? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts, and by extension, our hearts, operationally. That he would be present and working in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Note that. So Paul's praying that their faith would increase, that their trust in God. You know, faith is a nice religious word we use. We're really talking about trusting God. And that means in situations where you can't find your way or you're not sure, and a whole lot of life falls under that heading in that category. There's a lot that we have no control over. And it can be really scary sometimes, you know. Nobody here knows the day of their death. You know, nobody knows what. Tomorrow holds. None of us here in this room know how this day is going to end. We trust it's going to end good. Note I use the word trust there because we're talking about the future. We all have futures. We're trusting God in Christ to be merciful to us. We read our Bibles. We understand things that really aren't revealed. If you just look around the physical creation, one of those things that the Bible tells us that is a mystery, and that is that, There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. There's going to be a judgment. Christ is going to visibly return on the last day of history. We will see him. All who have ever lived will be raised up. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, I'll show you a mystery. Uh, To the Corinthians, he said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Well, that's not a whole lot. When I got up this morning and looked in the mirror, I didn't look like well. It hasn't happened yet, okay? Uh, it was still old me there staring back with you know a little less hair, and uh, it's like okay, time to go get a cup of coffee, get ready for church here. Uh, you know, been, I wasn't raised up in glory this morning, but it was a glorious morning. You know, and I, by God's grace, I remembered. My wife also uh, said to me the same thing. I was thinking that this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But we have a future. We know we have a future. We trust God for those things. And that's what he's saying, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Uh, you know, the old saying, it, it's pretty common. I don't know You know what uh, the future holds. And, you know, the second half of that. Uh but I know who holds the future. And that's where trust comes in. So I'm in his hands and through Jesus Christ, I trust that he has received me and I believe his promises. He's given me faith. That's what Paul's praying. That God will strengthen you in your inner person through faith. So what's he trying to build up? Paul's praying your faith will be increased. How is your faith increased? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. He went on to say, how shall they hear without a preacher? So the word has to be preached and taught, but we haven't written. It needs to be read. We need to study the scriptures. And as we hear God's word and really meditate on it and hide it in our hearts, you know, when I say meditate on God's word, you can do that with your Bible open. You can do that if you have scripture in your heart, but it's scripture. It's not your notions of what scripture ought to teach It's or what you think it says. That's why we go to the Bible continually because our minds, sometimes we skip a word or we weren't listening carefully. We go back, and I don't know if you have ever had this happen. Where you read a verse, and all of a sudden you see something there you'd never seen before. And if that's not happening to you, you're not reading your Bible enough. Okay, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, I'm just trying to encourage you. You're, Paul prayed that our faith would be increased, and that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That you know that the end of it, you know, faith, hope, and love are the three things talked about. The future that you know, hope is oriented toward the future. Christ would dwell in your hearts, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now that rooted and grounded, it's not saying that Christ would dwell, so now you can start being rooted and grounded. The Greek uh, of the original in this is just, the English conveys it quite well if we look, that you being rooted, that is, this is something that has to happen in your life. You want Christ to dwell in your hearts. Well, That work of grace where you're saved and God forgives your sins and he brings you out of darkness into light. He brings you out of the condemnation of hell and brings you into a relationship of forgiveness and of love and of peace. And he begins to transform you. And lo and behold, all your problems start looking a little smaller. And lo and behold, God gives you grace when you're tempted to turn away from it. Things begin to happen. You realize, hey, I don't want to sin against God all the time. I want to do what's right before him. And then you read your Bible. Ah, oh, I think now I know what God wants me to do. He wants me to speak the truth, to love mercy, uh, to do justly, and to walk humbly with my God. That's you know, from uh, Micah. I know what he wants me to do. But having already been rooted, thats the, it's the, the original word is that word, root. It's got the word reza. That's what it means, rooted. Uh, but it's a perfect tense, perfect passive. That you having already been rooted and then founded or grounded means set up on a foundation. But that's already been done to you. It's passive. He's not saying that you go root yourself and you uh, foundation yourself. He's saying that you being rooted. That and you know roots means that things get dug down. Remember the story of the uh, the sower. <laughs> the uh, some seed fell by the wayside, the birds snatched it up. So that's the devil coming, snatching the word out of the hearts of those who hear as soon as they hear it, nothing happens. Okay, the second of those that were uh, thrown onto stony ground, and he says, the you know, the seed sprung up, and so people hear the word and they're really happy about it. And then he said, you know, tribulations arise, the sun came up and it withered because it was on stony ground, it had no root. Okay, there was no depth for the roots to get moisture. And so it just dried up in the heat of the sun. That's the way some people are. If they hear the word, they're all excited about it. As soon as they get in a little trouble or somebody says, well, I don't want to hear about Jesus. And they're embarrassed all of a sudden and then they just turn their back on the Lord and they walk away from it. Uh, The third one is one we need to be concerned about. That was the seed sown among thorns because that's a slow, long process because he said the seed sprang up but then the thorns grew up and he said the thorns represent all the cares and the lust and the concerns and the, the, you know, deceitfulness of riches and other things like that. You know, the lust for other things he said grew up and choked the word and it bore no fruit. That's the kind of people that fill a lot of churches and I hope we we're not in that category. The way you get weeds out of a garden, some of you guys are pretty good gardens. Okay. How do you get weeds out of a garden? You just sit there and look at them oh i hope those weeds go away maybe i'll water them okay you don't do that what do you do Ed's a good gardener he can tell you what do you do Ed, to get rid of your weeds Take them out. yeah okay you got to get you got to get them out of there you pull them out how do you get the weeds out of your heart confession of sin you know your sins are your the weeds and if you don't deal with them they're going to choke everything you won't be able to produce any fruit fit for god's glory how do you get them out of it? You go to God You say, Lord, I got all this corruption and filth and just bad attitude or bad deeds, bad thoughts, bad words, whatever it is, Lord, I've broken your law. Please forgive me. I want this garbage out on my life. The Holy Spirit will direct your heart on how to pray if you're serious about it. So that's what we do. We go to God and that's how you pull the weeds out because we want to be rooted and grounded. So the root of God's word, and that's where all that was about to come back to this word root that the word would really take root in your life, that it would, you know, if there's rocks there, that it that, 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 that would break through it, okay, that God would get those rocks up. I've told you, some of you that are from the Midwest or out in the back east, if you've been there, you see the farms, you're driving out in the country, and sometimes, I've not seen it too much in California, but I, when I you know, travel a lot across country and live back east for a number of years, sometimes you'll see a field, and there'll be a guy out there plowing, and you'll see, an old pile of rocks on the edge of the field. And those that pile of rocks got put there back probably in the 1800s or 1700s, depending on where you're at in the country. And that's because somebody hit it with a plow. And I whoa, okay, or they just saw it and they picked it, either they did or they had their kids helping them. They'd pick up the rock, carry it over, put it on the edge of the field and get it out of there. And why? Because they knew it would interfere with what they were trying to do, and that is to grow a crop that would be beneficial. Our crop is good works to glorify God and and in our enjoyment of our salvation. And so the way you deal with rocks is you get those out the same way you do with weeds, a little differently because you pick them up and you carry them out. That is, you take your burdens to God and say, "Lord, I think I got some bad. Thing. I think there's some some hardness of heart here in me. I think I'm kind of dull. My 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 will is." Uh, not set to do your will. There's some some bad things. There's some cirrhosis of my will. going. You know, that means hardening of in my will. And I need you to, to heal me, Lord, and get this out of my life. Well, being rooted and grounded in love. That's what he wants. So we think about, wait a minute, all these things we're talking about, these sins, these difficulties, these hardenings, we want to get those out of our lives. Why? Because God wants you to experience his love and he wants you to, Be a person that that loves others. Remember, Jesus said, even love your enemies. How do you do that? Kind of hard to do if your heart's hardened. Kind of hard to do if you got a whole bunch of of sins and resentment and bitterness. You want to take that to God and say, well, get this out of my life. One of the reasons why I think, you know, you really want to go to God if you're bitter because people have mistreated you. Why allow their evil works to continue to have control over you? If you're bitter because of what someone else did, and they're in control of you. Their evil works are affecting you. Go to God. Say, Lord, get this garbage out of my life. I don't want to be bitter. I understand that person acted un- un- you know, unjustly, whether they said it or did it or whatever it was. But, Lord, I don't want to be controlled by that. I want to be controlled by your spirit. And you begin to love God. You know, some people, you know, you can forgive them. Uh, Francis Nigel Lee, when he went and talked to the young man... In south africa who had murdered francis nigel lee's father he went to the prison to talk to him this is in his testimony francis nigel Lee was a, a very famous scholar and when he went to talk to the young man first the prison was very why do you want to talk to him he murdered your your 80 year old father 85 year old father and he said i want to talk to him about the lord so he went in and he told him he didn't meet with him and the young man came out he said i want you to know he said I'm not here to do anything that's going to reduce your sentence. He said, I want you to know I'm a hell-deserving sinner, the same as you are. But don't think that I'm here, that this is going to somehow help you get mercy. He said, I want to see you prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But I want you to also know there's forgiveness through Jesus Christ that I found. He was able to witness to him. When I read about this, I was like, wow. Okay, God was really at work in Dr. Lee's heart in that. And the young man made a profession of faith. I don't know if if Dr. Lee ever visited him again after that. He didn't write any more about it. But uh, he told him, he said, I want to see you prosecuted to the full extent of the law for what you did, because it was wrong and you need to be punished. And that's why those laws are there. But, you know, I I hope that you can find mercy. That's why judges used to always say when they condemned someone to die, they'd say, may God have mercy on your soul. In other words, your actions have forfeited your right to live on this earth, but that doesn't mean you can't find forgiveness and you know have salvation so that's important so we need to learn to forgive in that sense put it in god's hands doesn't if somebody's wronged you in a manner that violates law uh there's nothing wrong saying i want to see them prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law but in your heart you want to ask god to give you grace not to be bitter and to recognize that christ came into the world to save sinners and again why give them power over your life now you know go to god say lord heal me of this so, being rooted and grounded in love, because God wants us to have hearts that are affected by His love. And once that happens, that's His prayer, you might be able to comprehend with all the saints. So, once we get beyond ourselves, kind of, and beyond our circumstances, beyond the negative events of our lives, and that takes a lot of prayer and a lot of work and a lot of, you know, trusting God. But He does the work in us. It's, he, it's God who works in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Uh, that we'd be able to comprehend with all the saints, what? I want you to understand, lay hold of, actually, uh, the idea there. Um, it means to, to seize, to, to grasp, that you'd be able to comprehend with all the saints. And so Paul's saying this is something that all God's people possess. Well, that is, it's their gift from God. They don't always necessarily are in full possession of it. But Paul said, I'm praying that you can really get a hold of this or that it'll get a hold of you, actually. What? What is the width and length and depth and height? To know the love of Christ. So Paul, when he talks about being rooted and grounded in love, of course we want to see that flow out of us. But Paul's not just saying, you know, God just wants you to be the sweetest person you can be. Well, that's not a bad goal, okay? We sing, we talk about to, to be grounded in love. something about the love of Christ. He said, I want you to know how much Jesus loves you, God's infinite, eternal love. When God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, when it says in uh, Timothy uh, that grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before eternal times, that means there's never been a moment in God's existence when he did not love you because his knowledge is, infinite he's omniscient that means all knowing he's omniscient so he knew you because he willed for you to exist you exist because he brought you into existence you have being in him we live and move and have our being because it was his good pleasure to do so and he wants you to know his love he's always loved you and this is what paul is saying i want you to know what is the width and the height and the depth of his love that's pretty extensive what what he's praying for here um, it's bible geometry you might say you know because those are actually measurements aren't they width and length and depth uh the the breadth or the the wideness how broad is his love how long is it what's the length of it it has no end what's the depth it goes all the way down to hell and fishes you and me out what's the height to the very height of the highest heavens where Christ is there gone and is uh, coming back to get us to take us to be with himself there's no measure to the uh, love of Christ that's what he says here, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge okay to know the love of Christ and actually it's it's can be rendered literally to know the beyond knowing love of Christ the superabounding love of Christ Christ he wants you to know this love that is beyond knowing that is you can't exhaust it there's it's a diamond with facets that are infinite and each one is a is is amazing and wonderful to behold that's what he's saying that you would know the love of Christ to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God and that's a pretty interesting statement you know Okay, so what does it mean? That's a good question for us. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? The fullness of God. Now, he's not talking about God's ontological being here. That is, we're not going to become God. Some will take this and try to say, oh, that's what that means. No, it doesn't mean that. God is God. You're a creature. You'll always be a creature. You don't. And there's nothing wrong with being a creature, by the way, if God created you, and he did. Matthew Henry said this. He prays that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is a high expression. We should not dare to use it. Did we not find it in the scriptures? We are not to understand it uh, of, of his fullness as God in himself, but of his fullness as a God in covenant with us, as a God to his people, such a fullness as God is ready to bestow, who is willing to fill them all to the utmost of their capacity, that uh, with all those gifts and graces which he sees that they need. In other words, you'll have everything God wants you to have, all the fullness of God. It says in uh, John 1.16, And of his fullness have we all received, In grace for grace. We've all received of his fullness. Uh, that's actually John the Baptist said that, recorded by John the Apostle there. Uh, And grace for grace. I love that because it's literally grace over against grace. If you want to know how God deals with you, well, it's by grace. Well, when it's not by grace, what is it? Well, when it's not by grace, God replaces that with grace. What? It's grace from start to finish. Okay? Uh, Grace against grace. Carine anti caritas" for you Greek scholars out there. Okay? Or graciam pro gracia for you Latin scholars. The fullness of it. Matthew Henry also said those who receive grace for grace from Christ's fullness may be said to be, quote, filled with the fullness of God according to their capacity, uh, all which is in order to their arriving at the highest degree of the knowledge and enjoyment of God and an entire conformity to him. Westminster Larger Catechism asked the question, What is the chief and highest end of man? gives us beautiful answer based on scripture. Man's chief and highest end, in other words, why are you here? What is your chief and highest end? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. Okay. You know, the carnal mind thinks, well, I'll glorify God. All right. I guess if I have to do it, I will. That's not, that's not biblical to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to love the Lord and rejoice in his love. That's what he wants you to do. And the Westminster divines recognize that. That's why they put that in the catechism. So by way of application, as the apostle Paul wrote these words to the church, being inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, Paul wasn't just telling us an uninspired man's thoughts. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us through this. He's the one that had Paul write this stuff down. So being inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, we may be fully assured that those gifts and graces for which Paul prayed are such that we also may and ought to be praying for the same ourselves. You can pray for this. You say, I really, I want to know the love of Christ beyond knowledge. Do you dare ask God for such a thing? Yes, because he tells you here, it's what he wants you to have. Think about it. You got the courage to pray this? What's this come with? Does this come with the cross? Yes. Does this come with me having difficulty in this world? Oh, absolutely. If you're going to follow Jesus, the world is going to hate your guts. And the more you follow Jesus, the more you're going to see that hatred. And often you may see it in the religious realm, not just among the the wicked, but you'll see it wherever the world is at work, whether it's ecclesiastical or secular, you'll see enmity against those who truly love the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, do you have the courage to say, Lord, I want to know your love beyond the knowledge. I want to know what this is talking about. The Holy Spirit, I think, has given you authorization to ask for this by showing you this in, in scripture. So you can pray for these things yourselves with the assurance that as we pray and ask for those things that God has directed us to ask for, we will receive them. If you pray for this, you'll get it from him through Jesus Christ remember that part very important our lord because we are praying according to his revealed will in the holy scriptures and as john said in first john chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 and this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will you just read what his will is right here so you know what his will is if we ask anything according to his will he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. The Apostle John wrote that, and that was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit also. So God, the Holy Spirit is telling you, here's what you should be praying for. Oh, and here in First John, he lets you know. And if you'll pray for these things, you'll have them. That's pretty cool. I'm encouraged by that. I hope you are. It's like, wow, maybe it's time for us to grow up, get serious, and move ahead. Say, Lord, I really want to walk with you. In uh, Hosea chapter six, beautiful verse. It says, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. That's Hosea chapter six, verse three. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. That is that refreshing. So if you've got the courage, by that I mean faith, to trust God, because that's what we're talking about, by faith. Say, Lord, I want this. Do this. I want to know you. I want to know that that love of Christ that passes knowledge. Teach me. If you do that, God's going to put it on your heart to hear his word. He's going to put it on your heart to be where the word's being taught have opportunities to listen to it, sometimes on the radio, sometimes on the TV, sometimes on your computer screen, sometimes in church, okay? So, you know, avail yourselves of the opportunities to learn God's word, and you'll be pleasantly surprised what happens. And then you can begin glorifying God and enjoying him forever, because you'll not just know what he wants you to do. You'll find it through the Holy Spirit's work. You'll be doing what God wants you to do and believing what he has said. He has to bring this about and this sermon's been a lot about prayer, so let's close now in prayer and ask God to do this for us. Let us pray.